you'll stand with me. We'll read from God's Word this morning. And it's because of that price that was paid on that cross that we can bring this morning's message of repentance and restoration. We'll be reading from Hosea chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. And you can find it in a pew Bible in front of you on page 516. Again, we're in Hosea chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifice of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are God's. For in you the fatherless finds mercy. I will hear their backsliding, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from him. Let's pray. God, we just thank you graciously for the messages you've brought to us. God, we just pray that uh, your word would speak into our hearts this morning. God, that we would be ready always to return to you, our loving Heavenly Father, who gives us grace and mercy. In Christ's name, amen. As we continue in our November worship series, a series that we've been in for the last two weeks, a series we've been calling Grace for Getting Back in the Race. And as we continue this morning uh, in this series, I want us to focus on one simple idea, one big idea, if you will, and that is returning to God. So far in this series, we've learned that we are as his children, we're, we're bent on backsliding from God. But God is relentless in loving us no matter what. And to that I say, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord, thank you, amen. In fact, God loves us so much that he will help us to return to him. And he helps us by disciplining us when we backslide from the Lord. Why? Because God desires us. He loves us, and He wants us, He longs for us as His children to return to Him. Just think, God desires you. God loves you, and He loves you so much that He disciplines you, which means that the pain of God's discipline is a sure sign of His relentless pursuing love for you. So don't resist God's loving discipline, as we learned last Sunday. Instead, respond to it and return to the Lord, and notice what happens when you do. Here in your notes, if you want to follow along, I invite you to. Notice what happens when we return to the Lord, when we respond to Him, is that God is always ready to forgive us when we return to Him. Yes, we are bent on backsliding, but God is always ready to forgive us when we return to Him. This is essentially the good news of God's message here in the last chapter of Hosea. And specifically here in verse 4 of chapter 14, when God says to His people in Hosea's day, and by application He says to us even today, I will heal they're backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from me. Now, in the very first message a couple of weeks ago, we alluded to the story of the prodigal son. 
in Luke chapter 15. It's, it's a beautiful story. It's about a father who had two sons, and the younger son asked for his portion of the inheritance. And so, if you remember the story, the son goes off to a far country, and he, he squanders everything he has through fast living, reckless living, whatever you want to call it. And, and when the son is literally down in the mud in the pigs, he, he finally comes to his senses, and he returns home after a season of living in sin. And to see how his father welcomes him home and throws him a party is a beautiful ending indeed. And of course, this story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, it, it's really a picture for us. It's a picture of God, our Father, His love for you and I. He forgives us and He welcomes us home as prodigal sons and daughters. But the story of the prodigal son, it's a beautiful story of God's relentless love for us. But do you realize that the welcome home party the father throws his son doesn't take place unless the son does what? Unless the son returns home. If the son doesn't return home, then there's no forgiveness to be received. If the son doesn't return home, there's no reason to celebrate the turning point, therefore, in the story of the prodigal son comes when the son comes to his senses, when he determines to, that he will get up and return home to his father. And that's always the turning point in our own lives. It's the turning point in my story. It's the turning point in your story when we backslide from God. And so issue, it really does come down to this. It's your move. It's my move. And the question becomes, will you return to the Lord your God? We learn in the first message that we're all bent on backsliding from God. We all stumble and fall due to sin. But God is relentless in loving us. He wants us to return. And the question becomes, will we return? That's always the turning point. And the prophet Hosea pleads in Hosea 14.1, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Yes, you and I, we are sinners. Yes, you have blown it a thousand times. And yes, you will blow it a thousand times more. But nevertheless, the Lord calls us back to himself. Hosea says, return to the Lord your God, which simply means the Lord truly wants you to return. Let that sink in. Let that truth grip your heart and mind and soul. The Lord wants you to return to Him. And so hear what God is saying to you wherever you may be at this point in life, in this journey with the Lord. Come home. The Lord is pleading with you to return to Him, knowing exactly what you've done. And Hosea here reminds us that we have God's help to even return to Him. We saw that last Sunday. And today, this help comes through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within every believer in Jesus Christ. And so the obvious question then becomes, well, how do we return to the Lord? Well, I want to answer that question from Hosea here. And the answer is simply this, by repenting of our sins. How do we return to God? By repenting 
of our sin. The Lord says to his wayward people in Hosea 14, verse 1, look at it with me again. He says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. The word iniquity is another word for sin. And this word return is it's a key term in the book of Hosea for repentance. Remember, the root idea of the word backsliding is turning. In other words, we back, the backslider has turned away from following God. So if backsliding is turning away from God to sin, then repentance is turning away from sin back to the Lord. Which means repentance is the only way, it's the only road back to the Lord. Without repentance, there is no returning back to God. In verse 2, God says something rather interesting about this idea of returning to Him. Look what it says. He says, take words with you. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Now that's interesting. So what kind of words should we take before God when we return to Him? Well, words from a heart that is truly repentant. Words from a heart that truly realizes one's own sin. As David writes in Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And these words are meant to be spoken, which means we must verbally confess our sins before the Lord, which tells us that true repentance always comes from a broken heart through confessing lips. Now, this brings us to a warning, though, and that is we need to be aware of phony repentance. Phony repentance versus true repentance. Notice this in your notes. Our repentance of sin must be authentic. Because phony repentance will produce phony results. We find an example of phony repentance right here in the book of Hosea. If you turn back to chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, you'll notice where God's people say this. They confess with their lips. The problem was their confession was not coming from a broken heart, a repentant heart. And so what comes out of their mouth is not true repentance, but phony repentance. Listen to the words. Look what they say. In Hosea 6, verses 1 through 3, they say, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but He will heal us. He has injured us, but He will bind up our wounds. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will restore us, that we may live in His presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Now, on the surface, that sounds really good, doesn't it? On the surface, that sounds like, whoa, man, they're so genuine in what they're saying. But what do you notice about this repentance? What do you notice here from them? Well, one, it's all about what God will do for them, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But that is the focus of their repentance here. And what's missing in their confession? Did you notice what's missing? There's no mention of sin whatsoever. 
the Israelites never once mentioned the sins that they had committed against their God. Why? Because they thought God's grace was cheap. They thought God's grace was easy to obtain any time they wanted it. But this is phony repentance, and it will not bring about true healing from God that God wants to give to those who come to him with a true repentance of heart. Yes, God says in Hosea 14.4, I will heal your backsliding. But God refuses to heal on the basis of bogus, fake repentance. God himself even goes on in verse 4 of this same chapter, chapter 6 of Hosea, after they confess to him, after they say what on the surface appears really good, really genuine, he goes on in verse 4 and he says, hey, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? And then he nails it. God says, your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. What an indictment on their love for God, on their confession for him. In other words, they did not have a heartfelt love for God. Their love was something they just casually did in the morning, but by noon it was gone. It had disappeared, and they were back to doing their old things worshiping the bells, trusting in false gods. They were back to business as usual. Thus, their repentance was false. It was fleeting. And such repentance will never bring about God's healing. We cannot fool God. We may fool one another. We may even fool our spouses, our friends, but we cannot fool God who knows our hearts. So beware of phony repentance because it will only produce phony results. So what then is true repentance? Well, here are two examples of true repentance in the Bible. In Psalm chapter 32, we find King David taking words with him, going to the Lord and being healed. And in verses 3 through 4, David confesses. He says, for when I kept silent, meaning when I refused to acknowledge my my sin, which in this case he had did for a year. What sin is he referring to? His sin of adultery with Bathsheba, his sin of committing murder against her husband, his sin of deception, all of these, his sin of lying. That's the sin he's referring to. And for over a year he kept silent. He refused to acknowledge it to God. And so he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand, Lord, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. And then, finally, after that, quote, discipline from God, David confesses his sin in verse 5. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You go back to the story of the prodigal son, and we see true repentance even in him. In Luke 15, verses 17 through 18, which is the turning point of that story, it says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here, I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, there's the words he took to his father. Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and against you. And then in verse 21, he said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Wow. I mean, how, how could this previously defiant, rebellious son speak these kind of words? Well, God had given him a different heart. God had given him a repentant heart. And now the son was making an authentic confession in which he turned away from his sin and returned all the way home to his father again. So how, how then do we do this? How do we go about returning to God? By repenting of our sin. And this repentance, folks, listen, it always comes from a broken heart that the Spirit of God himself manifests within us. And it comes then through confessing lips. Hosea says, take words with you. And this naturally brings us to a second question then. Well, how do we repent? What does this repentance look like? How do we go about doing it? Well, by following God's steps. By following God's steps. In fact, our God is so gracious. He's so merciful. He's so loving. He's so understanding. He pleads with us to return to him. And then he gives us, and this is what I love about our Father, he gives us step-by-step -step directions to lead us back to him. He doesn't just tell us what to do and leave us to figure it out on our own. He tells us what we need to do, and then he shows us the way back to returning to him. Look again at Hosea 14. We see these steps in this chapter here, in the first three verses. Look at it again. Hosea says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. And say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands. You are our gods. For in you the fatherless finds mercy. So what we see here are four steps for repenting of our sin. God's steps of repentance. The very first step is recognize your sin against God. Recognize your sin against God. Repentance always begins by first seeing our sin for what it is. And what is our sin? First and foremost, it is a sin against God. In verse 1, God says, For you have stumbled because of your iniquity, meaning we are the reason for our problem. Not someone else. Not God. We must agree with God that we have sinned. We have turned away from him. We have backslidden. And then we must accept responsibility for our own sin. We don't blame our siblings. We don't blame our parents. We don't blame our friends. We don't blame the world. We don't blame whatever. We agree with God what we have done is sin, and then we take responsibility for that sin. And until we see that we have stumbled in our sin and that this fall is caused by our sin, we will never repent 
And of course, this is the work of the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin, brings it to our minds, brings it forth in our heart. God is working through His Spirit to convict us. And through that conviction of our sin, we begin to recognize my sin is a sin against God. That's the first step of repentance. Step number two is then receive your forgiveness by God's grace. Receive your forgiveness by God's grace. In verse 2, God instructs us with what words to take with us when we confess our sins before God. He tells us to say, take away all iniquity. Literally, that simply means forgive all sin. And receive us, Lord, graciously. Now, as simple as this sounds, Folks, do you realize to cry out to our God, to cry out to our Heavenly Father, forgive all my sins and receive me graciously is a bold prayer. So how can God do this? How can God forgive you? How can God forgive me of my sins? Well, he cannot do so unless it is based on his justice. God's forgiveness is based on a a wonderful little word that we find in the Bible called propitiation. Everybody say that with me together. One, two, three. Propitiation. I won't ask if you know what it means or not. Propitiation. It's a tongue twister. And yet it's a beautiful little word in the Bible. Propitiation means that God's wrath toward us because of our sin can now be turned away from us because Christ suffered that wrath in our place with his death on the cross. That's the simple idea of propitiation. So the ground now of God's forgiveness is the cross, the place of divine judgment and justice before it was on the cross where God's justice met mercy and kissed. This is why God says later on in verse 4 of Hosea chapter 14, it's why he says, I will heal their backsliding, I will love them freely, and then you find this phrase where he says, for my anger or my wrath has what? Turned away from me. God's wrath was coming toward us. But now it is turned away. How can God's wrath be turned away from us? How is that possible? How does God just do that and remain a just and holy God? Well, it must be poured out on someone else. His wrath must be poured out on someone else. And this happened when Jesus Christ came That is the only reason God's anger is now turned away and he can now forgive us in response to our cry, God, forgive all our sins. God, forgive me of my sins. God is ready to forgive us because his wrath fell on a substitute. It fell on a savior. It fell on his only begotten son on the cross. And it's all by grace. Let that sink in. We can't earn this kind of forgiveness. 
It's by grace. We don't deserve this kind of forgiveness. It's by grace. It's amazing, isn't it? That's why the cliche, amazing grace, that's why it's so true. So what does all this mean for us today? It means God now can justly forgive our sins as we repent and believe on his son, Jesus Christ. This means we must confess our sin and receive God's forgiveness, not by our works, but by God's grace in his son, Jesus. And our confession of sin, let me just remind us again, must be sincere. It must be authentic. This is what is meant when it says at the end of verse 2, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. In other words, don't give lip service to God when you come before him, when you return to him and confess your sin. Make sure your confession in the lips flows from a broken heart. And when it does, we have God's promise, that verse most of us know in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. In other words, he makes us clean again, whole again. It's a beautiful truth and promise in God's word here. And so the second step is first, we recognize our sin against God. Second, we receive our forgiveness by God's grace. And the third step is to renounce your reliance on false gods. Now, these last two steps of repentance are just as critical as the first two. For when we turn away from God, folks, listen to me. When we turn away from God and backslide from him, which we are prone to do, we're bent on doing this, understand our fundamental problem in doing that is one of misplaced trust. When we turn from God and turn to anything else, we are diverting our trust on God alone and we're putting our trust in something or someone else. It's a fundamental problem of misplaced trust. In fact, one author rightly defined this basic problem as really it's misplaced worship. For we have diverted our worship of God alone now to something else or someone else. Or perhaps, as we also learn, it may be, oh, I still worship God, plus here, which is still false worship. This is why we often treat our God as so irrelevant. Because we don't really believe that he alone is worthy of our worship. That he alone can satisfy us. That he alone is our meaning in life and gives us purpose in life. And is the one who can save us and help us and rescue us and fulfill us and sustain us in this world. And because we don't really believe that, oh, we, may be, we believe it. Uh, I, I trust him for my salvation, but from this point forward till he comes again or till I die, I'm not quite sure I trust him for everything else in this life. And so we have this struggle of misplaced trust 
misplaced worship. And so God tells his people, just as he tells us now by application, to also say in verse 3, look at it, look what the Israelites were to say to God. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods. Now, let me give you context to this. Let me explain what's going on here so we can then apply it to our lives. The Israelites, who were God's chosen people, they were always trusting in the military strength of foreign powers. In other words, what they would do, instead of trusting God alone, they would make alliances with foreign powers, and they would pay them to protect them. And they had these treaties going on. And in Hosea's day, Assyria was the false god, the false savior for Israel. In other words, they were trusting Assyria for their protection. They refused to trust in God, even though God had promised to be the defender of Israel. And so they abandoned God choosing to trust in Assyria for their protection and their security. More than that, Israel kept making idols to worship the Bells. We learned last Sunday that the Bells were the Canaanite fertility gods. And so they kept making these idols, carved them, and they would worship these idols instead of the Lord. In other words, they were looking to these other false gods to give them all the things they were truly living for what they craved in their life, and that is no different than what we crave, which is prosperity and security in a chaotic world. Instead of trusting God to bless them with those things, they went to the false gods, false foreign powers, and the belt, Canaanite gods, trusting them, worshiping them. Oh, make our lives easy and happy. But isn't this our problem as well? All right, I'll raise my hand. It's my problem. Anybody else want to raise your hand on that? No, I'm just kidding. You don't got to raise your hand. But sure it is. Man, this is our problem as well. How many of us refuse to trust in God alone while we trust in everything else? Our basic problem is misplaced worship. But whoever or whatever we're trusting in cannot save us. It cannot bring us fulfillment and happiness and meaning in life. We must recognize this sin of not trusting God alone, of not worshiping God alone, and then confess that to the Lord. Ray Ortland Jr., who is an author and pastor, writes, and I quote what he says here. He says, that issue was the all-sufficiency of God. With the question perhaps put this way, where does life in all its richness and fullness come from? Does it come from God alone or from God plus others? If it comes from God alone, then one will look obediently to him alone for that life. But if it comes from God plus others, then one will spread one's allegiance around because God alone is not enough. And that's exactly what the people of Hosea's day were doing. But life, in all its richness and fullness, does come from God alone. But like the prodigal son, oh man, we often have to learn this truth the hard way, don't we? And even the Israelites had to learn this truth the hard way too. You go back to Hosea chapter 5 
in verse 13, and it says, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, Yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. That's what God's telling them. Oh, you turn to Assyria? You turn to that king instead of the king of kings? Oh, I got news for you. You're coming up empty every time. Because they can't heal you. They can't heal the wound. They can't cure you. Why? Because only God can heal our wound. Only God can save us from our sins. And so God's solution then, in His grace, in His mercy, is to bring us to our senses. I love that term in the prodigal son story. He came to his senses. How many parents have prayed that their children would come to their senses? I'm praying that every day right now. Let me tell you, our Heavenly Father is praying that we come to our senses. Because God knows what's best for his children, what's best for us. And so God's solution is to bring us to our senses so we will repent and return to him. And so like the Israelites, listen, cry out to God, Assyria cannot save us. In other words, I'm not saying cry out those exact words, but acknowledge that you have trusted in other things or other people rather than God alone and confess to God, I abandon these false gods and come to you, I realize you alone can help me and save me. That is the idea when Hosea tells his people to take those words in your repentance and confession to God and say that Assyria cannot save us. It is a renounce of your reliance on false gods. Eugene Peterson writes in Praying with the Prophets, repentance of this kind can radically change the course of events. The moment we turn away from all God's substitutes and return to God, new life begins to flow. That's beautiful. This brings us to our last step of repentance. Reaffirm your faith in God alone. Of course, this last step is the positive side of step number three because the two go hand in hand. We renounce our reliance on false gods, but we must not stop short there. We must also then reaffirm our faith in God alone, our trust, our reliance, our dependence in God alone. And then Hosea, he adds this summarizing phrase at the end of verse 3. He says, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. In other words, in the Lord, in God, the fatherless finds mercy. You see, in our sin, we have become orphans. We become prodigal sons living in a far country. But in God, we find mercy and grace. Think about the plight of an orphan. An orphan is a vivid example of one who is destitute and incapable of self-preservation, one who is completely dependent on another. And so here, the needy orphan represents the sense of helplessness that we must have when we return to God in repentance. Repentance involves abandonment to the mercies of God. Have you ever confessed your need to God? Listen, God cannot heal us if we are telling him how great we are. God cannot heal us if we are telling him how big we are, how beautiful we are, how well connected we are. 
we must confess our desperate need for God and then reaffirm our faith in God alone. As Joel chapter 2 verse 13 reminds us, it says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Oh, folks, listen to me. Do you realize how merciful and how gracious the Lord is? He's not an angry, irritable, harsh father. That is not our God. Rather, our God is a loving, patient, generous father full of mercy and grace. He's the father who pleads with us to turn away from our sin and return back to him in repentance. He's the father who stands looking and waiting to welcome us home with open arms. He's a father who reassures us, I will heal your backsliding. I will love you freely for my anger has turned away from you. So how then should we respond to such lavish, extravagant grace and mercy by our God? I would exhort to us this morning, our response should be one of don't delay. Don't delay returning, but today return to the Lord in repentance of sin. And so, if like the prodigal son, you have come to your senses, then don't delay, but return to the Lord today. Whether you are a lost sinner, coming to Christ for the very first time, or whether you're a backslidden believer, returning to Him again. Listen, we can trust in our Heavenly Father. Yes, we are bent on backsliding from God, but God is always ready to forgive us when we return to Him in repentance of sin. And the ground of God's forgiveness is none other than the cross of Jesus Christ. The place where the wrath of God collides with the mercy of God. God is ready to forgive us because His wrath fell on a substitute, on a Savior, on His only begotten Son. It was at the cross where God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you understand? Do you realize forgiveness and righteousness? Forgiveness and righteousness, two needs of every person in the world here this morning, are met in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we receive the forgiveness of sins. And in Jesus, we receive His righteousness. And so God freely forgives, freely gives forgiveness and righteousness to all who trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. As God tells us in Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved. Be rescued, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Now as we come to the end of this message, I want to go back to this thought that Hosea tells God's people. Hosea told God's people to, quote, take words with them when they return to the Lord. And so as we prepare to 
participate in communion, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, the bread and the juice, what words should we take with us to the Lord's table? Well, I want to suggest that we take the words praise, repent, ask, and yield. And of course, those four words are an acronym that spell pray. These are words that we can take with us to the Lord's table. We can praise God for His grace and His mercy in Jesus Christ, can we not? We can repent of any sin and receive God's forgiveness because of that grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. And then we can ask God to help us in whatever need you may have this morning. And in general, we can ask God to help us to run the race that he has set before us and to run it with endurance. And then we can yield our lives to God, yield ourselves to the race that God has laid out for every one of us here this morning. And so I encourage you as we come to the Lord's table to take these words with you. Let's pray. With your heads bowed, the praise team's going to come and we're going to have a response time. And as they sing, let me encourage you, before we come to actually participating in taking the bread and juice, right there at your pew, to prepare your hearts and to take these words, to take praise, repentance, ask and yield, and go before our God. Take those words before our Heavenly Father. And then after you're done doing that, Come to the table and participate in communion. Praise seems going to sing, so let me encourage you to do just that. And then, after they're done singing, the music will continue to play. And, and while you don't need necessarily to be a member here at Glenwood, we ask that followers of Jesus Christ, you are invited to participate in communion. There are four tables that you may stand and walk to, and once you get the bread and the juice, you may take it back to your seat. The bread and the juice represent the body and blood of Jesus when he died on the cross, and it reminds us who our Lord is and what he has done for us and is doing for us and will yet do for us when he returns. Take a few minutes, though, as the praise team sings. Take these words to the Lord, and then after they're done singing and the music continues. As followers of Christ, we're invited to then come to the table.